anybody in the hallway? Tell them to come in and worship Yahweh. I remember when Juan used to lead worship, we had to sing whatever Juan say. Ain't there somebody from Boys to Men named Juan Gay? Y'all know I can do this all day. Now let's all say amen. That's next week. All right, one of the reasons why the supernatural storyline of the Bible, our series last year, and the supernatural lifeline is so different in focus is because of something that Jesus said to his disciples. This was one of the reasons why we shifted from all the great information that God gave us and about the supernatural, the way that the devil works and all of that, to now needing to really apply it because and remembering the devil's working on us. There was a reason why that shift happened. Let me read you from Luke 10, beginning at verse 17. You're familiar with this narrative because we talked about it in the storyline, and you probably have read it countless times. But here's the reason, at least one of the reasons, why there's a shift in focus from the last series to this one. Here's what happens in Luke, Luke 10, beginning in verse 17. Three verses, 17 to 20. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Understand what Jesus is doing here. They are excited at the fact that they understand supernatural implications. Demons are subject to them. They're excited about that. That's the first thing they come back and say, Jesus, not people are getting saved. Not all, it's the demons are subject to us. They're so excited because of all this supernatural understanding and what's happening. And, and Jesus says, yeah, that, that's true. I've given you authority in those things. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice at the supernatural activity you're doing on earth. Rejoice that your names are written in eternity. And when I thought about our church, I thought, man, how excited it was to week to week to hear supernatural things and understand what the Bible is saying and be excited about it. But we can easily forget that we have to be excited about eternity and where we're going. Which, if we're honest, that's a hard thing for many of us. Most of us don't think about heaven until we sing about it, know someone who passed away that we hope made it, and so forth. So Jesus said, don't be excited about the supernatural and what you're doing on earth. Be excited that your names are eternal, written in eternity. So I want to make sure that our church is not more excited about what we understand on the, and how we function on earth, but that we're excited about what's eternal. And then we're thinking about eternity. I also 
in my being a pastor here and just having connections with the broader church, I also know and believe that many Christians are living not to go to hell instead of living to go to heaven. There's a difference. Because when you're not trying to go to hell, you'll be, you'll do good enough stuff to conceivably not go, but are often not trying to be godly enough because you are presumably going to heaven. We'll do enough stuff. I mean, nobody, even the people who don't believe in Jesus, they understand the concept of hell, don't want to go. This is a subtle reality in the lives of a lot of people who profess to believe. And if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it in your life. You'll miss it. I also think it's one of the primary reasons that people are walking away from Christianity. JP and I are reading a book called The Great Dechurching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? This book is explaining largely why Gen Zers are leaving the church in droves. The book boasts that some 40 million people are currently dechurched. We're reading this book because we said we want to pattern the youth ministry around this. We're not trying to do a traditional curriculum. These kids be in school all week. The last thing they want to do is sit in here on Sunday and get another curriculum. That's not the problem is that they're not, they need to learn more. The problem is they're leaving. In reading the book, JP sent me a text with these stats. And I read it too and then I sent him some stats and we were both like, wow. Here was his text to me. Hey, Kurt, I just want to confess some sin in my life. No, that's not what he said. <laughs> Had JP like, no. <laughs> Velma clutched his hand. Here's what he said to me. Relational tension with a parent can often be the cause of a child leaving the church. We learned in our research that 68% of de-churched evangelicals said their parents played a role in that decision. And here was the, here's the breakdown. These kids left because all of their parents' emphasis on culture war lost me over time. 14% said that. 14% said their lack of love, joy, gentleness, kindness, and generosity is why I don't, I don't want to be in the church. Another 14% said their inability to listen. Another 13% said their inability to engage with other viewpoints. And another 13% said their racial attitudes or actions. This is a new book. Real-time data that's shaping the way we want to do youth ministry. But for me, there's a deeper issue in why people are leaving the church. And this is low-key what I think is the biggest threat to the integrity of the gospel as we know it. And I think it's the greatest strategy that Satan has ever come up with. This is a fantastic strategy. And it's deceived. 
I don't know, countless amount of people, including those of us in this room. Two weeks ago, I explained another dichotomy that we're going to zoom into today. Last week, we talked about earthly versus eternity. Today, we're going to talk about this week, it's good versus godly. What does that mean? Now, I want to give a biblical case for what I mean because this could be confusing. Some of you are, hmm, rightly so. It could be confusing because on one level, the Bible commands us to be good. It's biblical to do good, be good. Matthew 5, 16, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. One of my favorite passages, Galatians 6.10, he says this. So then, as we have every opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So it's clear that good is biblical. So why am I contrasting good versus godly when doing and being good is biblical? Well, there are two different kinds of good that the Bible talks about. There's two different kinds of good. There's a good that's defined by God that prioritizes and imitates him. And then there's a good that's defined by man. And we know this. In the supernatural storyline of the Bible, there was a passage we went to so much that you all should have it memorized by now. I'm not trying to shame you because I notice you don't. So when I read the passage, don't be like, oh, man, he's right. We should know this. But this is one of the pillars This is one of the most iconic scenes of the Bible and one of the pillars of the supernatural storyline of the Bible series. It's Genesis 3. Let's remember, let's refresh for those of us who are in the series, and it may be new for those of you that have not heard of this. Let's refresh what happened in this scene. Quick background, God created Adam and Eve, told Adam, don't eat from one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from every other tree, but not that tree. Genesis 3 opens up, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then, like Satan said, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There is a good that is not defined by what God says. The 
It's his most iconic scene in one of them in the scriptures. Let's go back and ask a couple questions. Satan says to her in verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. As far as we know, as far as we know, there was nothing wrong with Adam and Eve's sight. As far as we know. So their eyes were opened as far as we know. In fact, when, when Adam saw Eve, y'all remember, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. That's the reason why I don't leave worship. When he saw her, he said, man, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. He was like, Lord, that's what I'm talking about. She don't look like none of these other animals you created. We have no reason to believe that their eyes were not open. So why does Satan say your eyes will be open when they're not blind? There's nothing wrong with their eyesight. So what do you mean that their eyes will be open? Then he says, you will be like God. You will be like God. God said in Genesis 1, Let's make man in our own image, in our own likeness. They're already like God. So your eyes will be open and you will be like God, but you're not blind and you're already like him. So what is he saying? And then he says, here it is, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. And you realize, oh, like God does not mean that you'll do the ways, do the things that God says, the way he does it. It means you'll see things in your own way like God. You'll be like God in the role of decision making on what's good and evil, not an imitation of it. Their eyes being open means they don't need God anymore because they can see for themselves. Now, keep in mind that knowing good and evil means deciding what it means. Not just understanding it, but deciding it. Because they understood what it meant. He said, don't eat from this tree, the rest you're going to be fruitful, multiply the earth, exercise dominion and authority. Those are all good things. Sweet. As far as we know, they didn't ask any more questions. Yeah, God, but what about? They knew what good and evil was. They weren't blind. They could see. And they were already like God. But Satan said, you'll be like God deciding what good and evil is apart from him. Satan convinced Adam and Eve to essentially do what he did. I want to determine what good and evil is. I don't want to listen to your definition. And every human being, every one of us, inherited this from Adam and Eve, an automatic disposition that says, I define what good and evil is, not God's. And we all know this. If you babysat or you're a parent, your child can't even speak. But they will demand that you give them what they want in that moment. You don't even know where it came from. But it happens. There is a good that is more satanic than godly. We learned about this 
in the supernatural storyline of the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 11, we finished the series hanging around these verses. Remember this? Beginning in verse 13, 2 Corinthians 11, when Paul is explaining to the church that he planted why the, the, these guys that are coming in who are trying to be apostles, who are claiming to be apostles of Christ, are actually not. And here's what he says. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Right? So here's what he says. They're disguising themselves, and here's what they're, why. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So you see, an angel of light, light is good. Remember what God said? Let there be light. And light came, and God saw that it was good. Light is good. Jesus is the light of the world. Satan appears as an angel of light, an angel of good. He makes it appear that the things that he's telling you to do are good. And people think it's good, and they do them. And we'll find out later it wasn't good enough. It was the wrong goodness. And the people that work for Satan appear as righteousness. What is righteousness? Morality. Good. Why do they do that? I said this in the Supernatural Storyline. I think I said it two weeks ago that Satan is bound by the way God created humanity. This is why most religions are what? Good. People are trying to be good. How many religions do you know that are set on destruction of all humanity? There's, I'm sure there's some, but they don't have credibility. Most religions, you can name them, Islam, Buddhism, Jehovah's Witness, Baha'i faith. Even atheists. Why does everyone want to be a good person? If all those religions are fake and Christianity is real, that means all of the good that those people are doing is satanic. I believe that the Bible says Jesus is the only way to salvation. And that our works are not good enough, so Jesus died on the cross. It's ironic. So we're not good enough. We have our own definition of good and evil. Jesus comes, lives according to God's definition of good and evil. Then he dies as if he lived according to our definition of good and evil, is resurrected, and then we get his spirit to remind us of God's definition of good and evil, and so is the Christian life. This is why we get convicted when we sin. Ah, that's not God's definition of good and evil. You shouldn't do that. Satan is confined because he doesn't create, he recreates. So he has to work within the confines of the way God created humanity. Let's prove this. Let's go back again. We're still in the supernatural storyline, the flashback version. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 29. Listen to what happens here. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Notice how it says that twice. They want to make sure you understand that humanity 
is supposed to be like God in God's image. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Wonderful passage. Most theologians, most theologians focus on the second half of this passage, what mankind is supposed to do. We call it the cultural mandate. It's the cultural, it's a theological term, cultural mandate, which focuses on man's responsibilities to exercise dominion over all creatures, to be fruitful and multiply, which means have children, populate the earth. You will hear this like the cultural mandate, they'll focus on that. But the most important verses in this passage are not what mankind's supposed to do. It's actually three words in verse 26. The most important words in this are after our likeness. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. The Hebrew word demu, likeness, means model or shape or likeness. Always do that. Why you put the definition in the word, the same word in the definition? Other Hebrew terms will say likeness, image, builder's draft, figurine, model, shape, similarity in appearance, character, or nature between persons or things. Something intended as a guide for making something else. A sculpture formed in the image of something. Not idolatrous, likeness, image, becoming like, assimilation. Humanity was created by God to be like God, not just in what we do, like exercise of dominion and have children, but in who we are. Who we are. God is good. He created humanity with the capacity for good. We've been deceived by different theological frameworks to think that, that this is only a Christian ordinance. No. Being made in his image is a creation ordinance. All the people that you do not like, that you disagree with, whose lifestyles you think are, they're all made in God's image. And all of these people have a, a desire to do good. This is why people ask the question, what am I living for? In other words, what good am I contributing to the world? Why do people even have that question? You don't believe in Jesus. As a matter of fact, you think we're dumb for believing in him but yet you're struggling because you don't feel like you're, you're doing anything good in the world. People want to have purpose. They want to do good. That's why people get hustled. Somebody comes along with an opportunity, you want to do good, you think, yeah, let's do this. You get taken advantage of, not because you weren't shocked, but because there's a capacity for you to do some good in the world and someone exploited it. it. Happens all the time. We want to do good, but because we inherited that from Adam and Eve, we no longer have the right standard of good. We have become the standard, not God. So when we think about being good, we're not thinking about it from what God says. We're thinking about it from what we think is best for society. Humanity lost the standard by which righteousness is measured by God. But we didn't lose the fundamental capacity. People want to do good, but that good is just not good enough to earn us a spot back in God's presence like Adam and Eve. It's just not good enough. And Satan knows this. 
He knows it. So what he does is create other aspects of good that fit our being made in God's image, that satisfy that. I'm doing good in the world. Why do you think when you share the gospel with people and they say, but I'm not a bad person, and they list off reasons why they don't need to believe in Jesus, what are they doing? Here are the good things that I do. But you know that good is not good enough. Satan knows this. Our definitions of good and evil often rival each other. This is why conflict happens. This is why comparison happens. Case in point, let's stay in Genesis 3 for a second. We've looked at this scene from many angles. Let's look at it from one more angle. One more, I promise. Last time we'll be in Genesis 3 for a long time. Sort of. Be back in two weeks. I'm just asking for forgiveness. Let's look at this. Genesis 3, beginning of verse 7. So, right, we read 1 through 6. Then the eyes of them were open, like Satan said, he wouldn't lie. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Like he doesn't know that. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said to the serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So why didn't Adam and Eve both say, forgive me, we disobeyed you? I mean, they, they know it's God. It's not like you, you know, you know, sometimes when my kids were little, you did a little thing like, ooh, and they really thought you can't see them. They didn't know that when they were hiding under the bed, and they think they're all snickering and laughing, and they think when you're like, where's my son? Where's, they're all laughing because they honestly think you can't see them. And you see something giggling in the bed that's about the size of your child. God knows. But he asked a question to show them something. He didn't ask it because he needed to understand. He asked them to show them who they are. Why didn't they say we were wrong? I'm sorry, Lord, please forgive us. I wonder what would have happened. Not saying that things would have been, but I just wonder what would have happened if they said, Lord, I was wrong. You told me not to eat from the tree. I told her, and we just did it. We were wrong. Please forgive us. Maybe even crying, weeping. Man, I disobeyed the one thing you said not to do. Why did they blame everyone else? It was her, the woman you gave me. It was kind of your fault because you gave me to her. And then she said, well, it was the serpent's fault. None of them said, it's my fault. In this scene, the blame is a combination of accusation and comparison. And both of these are satanic. 
accusation. Satanic. Let me explain what I mean. Revelation 12, another passage we know well. We sat in this passage in the last series. Beginning of verse 7 through 11. It's a fascinating passage to me. These next two passages I'm going to read are fascinating to me, and you'll see why in a second. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, and the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Jesus Christ have come for the accuser of, the, of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God? The accuser, the brethren, accused. When you blame, you're accusing. It was, it was, it was, it was them. It was her. It wasn't me. It was the one you gave. It was her. It wasn't me. It was a serpent. Another passage. Look at this. Zechariah 3, verse 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and standing at his right hand to accuse him, Satan. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Meaning, isn't this someone that was destined to go to hell, but was plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Verse 1, it says that Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse Joshua. Now think about this for a second. Of all the evil things that Satan has done, you have the audacity to accuse somebody else of something? I mean, think about it. This dude ushered in the temptation that we all fight against. And he has the audacity to accuse someone else? Satan is the epitome of the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, I don't know what it's going to be like when we stand before God, but if Satan is there to accuse me, Lord, look at what he did. I'm going to be like, look at what you did. What you mean what I did? Look at what you did. Let's run down the list. We're going to turn that courtroom around. I object, Your Honor. Time doesn't permit me to do this, but most of the times the word accused is used in the Bible, it's used negatively. You see, like the Pharisees did this to accuse him, and they did this to accuse him, to accuse, accuse. Most of the times the word accused is used, it's used in the negative sense, as in not of God. Accusation is satanic. Lord, it was hurt. But the other reason why they did that was because of comparison. In most cases, comparison to other people is your definition of good and evil versus theirs. Often when we accuse other people, 
We take the focus off of what we do. We put it on somebody else. Jesus called this out beautifully in this John 8 narrative. This, this, the, we don't know if this was supposed to be in the Bible or not, but it's here, so we're going to use it. But he looks into the story. Whether it's real or not, it still makes the point. Early in the morning, this is John 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test them. And they might have, as, and they might have, some, char- that they might have some charge to bring against them. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask, he stood up. So they're still asking, so what are, we, what are we supposed to do? Do we stone her or not? And he said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, you all are accusing her, comparing yourself to her. You think you're godly and she's not. Okay, then whoever has no sin, be the first one to throw a stone. And a Homer Simpson gift. Back right up into the bushes. There was nobody there. When we compare ourselves to other people, we essentially think, well, their sins are worse than mine. You may not functionally use that sentence, but it's the sentiment behind why you feel like you're a better good person than them. And it's only compared to our definition of good and evil. This will make more sense in a few minutes. Throughout the Bible, there is an understanding of good that is based on a criteria that's not from God. When the Bible talks about good, it's good according to God's standards, not ours. A good that prioritizes and imitates God to God is godly. A good that prioritizes self to God is at best, is at best good. Just good. Because that definition of good and evil is not the standard. Case in point, let's go back to last week and let's look at the scene again that we saw, Martha and Mary. Let's look at this scene with this good versus godly paradigm. Luke 10, verse 38 to 42. Here's what it says. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And as she had a sister, she had a sister called Mary, who was at the Lord's feet, and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and, went, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Look at what's happening here. Martha believes she's doing good. And she's comparing herself to her sister who's being godly. She's comparing herself and she's complaining about godliness. Because when you're doing good, you think God is pleased with it. That's why she says, Lord, do you not care that I'm serving? I'm doing the good stuff and she's just sitting there. 
good will be offended at godly. It'll be offended. Because the standard for good is being a better good person than others. And Martha thinks I'm a better good person than my sister because I'm the one serving and she's just sitting there. Jesus said you're distracted by many things. And he's right. Because good is distracted by the good it does in comparison to other people. But godliness doesn't let good distract them from prioritizing God. So Jesus said, she's doing the right thing, the real good. Jesus isn't, thank you for serving, but Jesus didn't come there and say, I'm famished. Somebody make me a steak or something. He wants fellowship, community. So Mary could serve, but she's like, I'm sitting at his feet. Martha, who's doing good, is complaining about her sister who's being godly. And Jesus says, you're actually wrong here. This is a pervasive theme in the Bible. It's a pervasive theme. And I think it's a pervasive theme of many of our lives in this room. It's a pervasive theme. Good people do two things primarily. Two things. One, they compare themselves to others instead of God. And two, they limit their obedience to God if they're being sinned against by others. Let me explain what I mean. Let's start with limiting their obedience to God if they're sinned against by others. When you're trying to be good and you're comparing your goodness, you're trying to be a better good person, the way you treat others is contingent upon how they treat you, not how God treats you. So your obedience will be obedient. You'll obey as long as they stop sinning against you. And that's what matters more than anything else. Let me show you this. In a very similar parable, very familiar parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Listen, let's pay attention. Let's zoom in to what Peter asked Jesus and then what Jesus says. Matthew 18, verse 21. Listen to this question. And think about this from a good versus godly paradigm. Listen to this question. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? It's a good question. But let's zoom in and see what is Peter really asking Jesus? So he says, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now keep in mind that forgiveness imitates God. The foundation of our relationship with God is based on forgiveness. So forgiveness is an act of obedience. It's not separate. Forgiveness is obedience. It imitates God. That's why Jesus said, as we heard last week, if you don't forgive others their sins, you won't be forgiven yours. Because it's that important. It's a significant act of obedience. Loving others, especially those in the household of faith, and forgiving others are two pillars of genuine conversion. And if those are not there, it doesn't matter how much you read, how much you serve, how long you've been a Christian, and all of it. It doesn't matter. 
If those two pillars are not there in your life, you are not a Christian to God. I am not a Christian to God if those pillars are not there. So listen to this question. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Look at what he's really asking. How many times do I have to be godly in my response to someone if they keep repeatedly sinning against me? This is what he's asking them. How many times do I have to be godly in my response if people keep sinning against me? Let's paraphrase it again. Do I have to keep forgiving someone or is there a limit to my obedience in doing that? Do I have to keep forgiving someone if they keep sinning against me? Or is there a limit? Can I stop at seven? Seven good. Let's paraphrase the question again. Am I allowed to not forgive people if they sin against me? After a while. This is a question that he's asking. Jesus, what is the limit of my obedience? Do I have to keep? Look at what he's asking. Then he says seven times. Seven times was double the amount that they were taught in his day to forgive others. After three times, that's a wrap. Maybe they thought the Trinity, Father, well, actually they didn't even know about the Son yet, so I don't know if they... They just thought, hey, three times, and that's it. I mean, I, I'm so glad I didn't grow up then, because I know me. I'd have been like, hey, man, that's the second time you sinned against me, bro. Two, three strikes. That was it. So Peter was being a better good person than most people because he asked double the amount of time. So can I, do, am I allowed to not forgive after twice the amount that we're normally taught to forgive? I'm a better good person than these people because they're doing three. Lord, I'll do seven. Is that good? Is that cool? Is there a limit to my obedience when people sin against me repeatedly? That's what Peter's asking. And many of us do the same thing. There's a limit to our obedience if people sin against us. Because we think we're a better good person than them. This is what being good does. So Jesus answers Peter's question. Eye-opening. Listen to what Jesus says. Listen to what he says. I'm going to read this fast because I'm going to the game. Don't act like you don't know. Jesus said to him, Matthew 18, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It says 77. And then he goes through the parable of the unmerciful servant where a guy who was forgiven like a billion dollars by the king goes and shakes somebody up for $100. And then he gets thrown back in prison when people see it and tell the king, and the king's like, bro, I forgave you for an amount that no one could ever pay, and he owed you a couple of days' wages. Why did you treat him like that when I treated you differently? I forgave you, and you had the greater sin. 
What the emphasis here is on, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. Now, the context here is specifically forgiveness, but the principle extends beyond it because forgiveness is obedience. It's imitating God. Principally speaking, what Jesus was saying to Peter by answering 77 times is that your obedience to God doesn't stop because someone sins against you. It doesn't have a limit. Jesus wasn't saying, yeah, do it 77 times and that's it. Who's going to count that many? It's some petty people that would, though, probably. <laughs> like, look, that's 67. I mean, I just did this one. It's some petty people that would. But Jesus' point is that your obedience to God, how you treat others, is because you've sinned against God and been forgiven. It doesn't stop because people keep sinning against you. Because if you stop forgiving people and obeying God when they sin against you, then God said, well, then I'm going to stop. So if you don't imitate me, I'm going to imitate you. And there's a difference between good and godliness. Because godliness imitates what Jesus does. Good compares itself to other people and says, I'm better. I don't do that. Godliness compares itself to God and says, man, I shouldn't have done that. This is pervasive in the church, in our church. I have to fight against this constantly because it's easy to think to reduce Christianity down to being a better good person than other people than being an imitator of Jesus. And the longer we've been around it, the less we even see it. This is why this is important for us. Because many of us don't say this, but we live like our obedience to God is connected to people's disobedience towards me. If they don't honor the Lord, then I'm going, at some point, that's a wrap for me. I'm done. I don't know what your limit is or what your threshold is, but our obedience to God happens often as long as people stop sinning against us. So we'll be nice, patient, willing to forgive others as long as they treat us the same way. But when they stop, we stop. We have a seven times mentality more often than a 77 times mentality. And this means our obedience is not really good to God. It's good in comparison to someone else. In fact, our obedience is more, I'm doing this so that you stop sinning against me. Let me show you how this plays out. In all interpersonal relationships, this happens. In every interpersonal, if you're close with someone, this happens. Marriage, parenting, with your parents, in law, any relationship, this happens. You correct someone for something you see in their life. Say it's your spouse. And their response back is this. Yeah, but you do it too. Or you do this though. Let's examine what's happening in that moment. 
What's happening? Let me tell you what I'm saying is, because I know many people in this room who are scared to even bring something up to their spouse because of this very thing. It becomes a conflict, and you start arguing over, guess what? Who's a better good person? Will you do this too? Will you do this? Why doesn't, why doesn't the person say, what, what did I do? You said I did what? Oh, man. I'm not honoring the Lord. That doesn't even come into play. There's a defensiveness, a pushback. And all of a sudden, it's like you start thinking about what this person does. Well, I'm a better good person. You do this. What about when you did this? Because you immediately compare yourself to the person, and you think, I'm a better good person than you because I don't do what you do. Or I don't bring things up to you that I also do, so you're a hypocrite by telling me this. You're offended because your spouse or whoever is telling you you're not a good person. You're not as good as you think you are. And you think, well, I'm a better good person than you. Look, you do this. Saying you do it too is basically calling them a hypocrite. And they're a hypocrite for correcting you. All the while ignoring the fact that to God, if you sin, that's the only thing that matters. You won't find a credible Bible translation that says, if someone sins against you, you good. Let, them, let it go. You won't. And I said credible. You won't. So when someone sins against you and your immediate response is, well, look at what you do, and you're defensive and you push back, it has nothing to do with, are they right? Am I dishonoring God at all? I know some people that can't even have that kind of conversation with their spouse. It never gets to, am I dishonoring God? And now you're defending who's a better good person or saying, all right, but I'm talking about you right now. I'm focusing on you right now. And then all of a sudden you're arguing over who does what we have. You did this and you did this and you did this. And nobody's thinking, am I disobeying God? Because that's the standard, not being a better good person than the person telling me I, was, I did something wrong. And whenever it's that, then I can't even see the vertical. I know many people in this church, husbands and wives, they just laugh it off, joke it off. Because it's not even worth bringing it up. And we pretend like it's okay. We side with each other's genders. The women side with the women. The men side with the men. I understand because ain't no men are from Mars and women are from Venus. It's Christians are from God. And it doesn't happen. When you're trying to imitate God, it doesn't matter if they sin against you. It matters that you sin against God. We don't repent sinning against other people. For them, we do it to honor the Lord. What matters is you're not imitating Jesus. And so when a person, but when you think you're a better good person than the person bringing it up to you, it doesn't even matter if you're not honoring the Lord. You're just ready for a fight. And then it ends up in a bigger conflict about all this other stuff. And you never just get to the point where like, hey, you know what? I need to honor the Lord. You might be right. When you're good, you're trying to be a better good person. And when someone tells you you're not a good person, you're offended. That's what's underneath all that defensiveness. You know how many conflicts between people would just be gone if people thought, you know what, I'm, you're right. you might be right. Let me think about that. And the Lord conviction, you'd be like, you know what, yeah, I need to honor the Lord. But you're so offended. And I've done it countless times. I didn't know what was going on. 
I thought it was just like, man, what you? But it was always, I'm gollier than you, though. When's the last time you read or prayed or did this or did that? When's the last time you got up in the middle of the night and changed the diapers and did this? I do all this stuff. I do all. I do this. I do that. You don't do that. You, yeah, well, you don't do this and you don't do that. And now you're in my office. And the whole time, it's just arguments over who's a better good person. Nobody's looking up. Everybody's looking this way. And we think, man, this is honoring to the Lord. We've reduced our faith down to being a better good person rather than imitating Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's okay. Jesus died because he knew we wouldn't obey him perfectly. And to be honest, all of us are worse than any correction that we get from people anyway. No one knows all the stuff we think and do and all of that. We're worse than whatever correction you've given me. You calling me selfish is the tip of the iceberg. You want to hear the rest of it? How much time you got? But when we're focusing on being good instead of godly, it's we're comparing ourselves to others. I read a quote about parents. We do it all the time. We yell at our kids for not obeying us. And don't ask for forgiveness because we're a better, I'm the parent, you're the child. I'm the parent, you're the child. I'm allowed to sin against you in my anger because you disobeyed me. And we don't even think that this anger disobeys God. So you think I'm the parent, you're the child, your kid thinks you're the hypocrite. Because you're telling me to obey God and you don't have to. They won't say it because they know their place. But they'll live it. And we wonder why they walk away. You saw the report. 68% said it was my parents that influenced my decision, not Satan. We have an obedience for convenience mentality. And that's not how it works. This is a deadly scheme of the devil. We compare ourselves to others. And some people are already trying to find reasons why I'm wrong. That's fine. I've done this. Hand over fist. And I'm ashamed at it. It's obedience for convenience, not obedience from conversion. God wants us to obey him because it's the right thing to do because of who he is. But we'll obey as long as you don't sin against me too much. We don't think we're like Peter, but we are. God wants obedience from conversion, not obedience for convenience. This idea is so subtle that many of us don't even see it. Are you good or godly? What's the standard? How this person manages their life or how Jesus said you should manage yours? In the Bible, the Pharisees were the most guilty of this. And one of the best parables in the Bible, Jesus exposes this. And we're going to close with this. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 18, beginning of verse 9. Listen to this. You know this well, but listen to this from the good versus godly paradigm. 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen to what Jesus says here. I tell you that the man went down, that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The man who was like, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Not the man who said, I'm glad I'm not like him. He said he went home justified. You know what justified means, right? Forgiven. Anyone who's not justified that's not forgiven will not spend eternity with God. So Jesus, just in a parable, told the people that the person that you think is the most godly is actually the one who's not even saved. And the person that you hate the most is the one who's saved before God. What's the difference? Good, the Pharisee, confident in his own righteousness, confident. Believes himself to be more righteous than others. I mean, starts his prayer off. Not God, I thank you. Thank you for what you've done in my life and for the grace that I received from you. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You're in the temple. You're in the temple. And you're like, I'm glad I'm not like even this tax collector right here. Good believes themselves to be more righteous than others, and they're satisfied with that because that's the standard. I'm glad I'm not like these people. Good calls out the sins of others to validate their goodness. What would you do? Look at, this, look at this, look at that. My God. I would never wear that. What is she doing? Good boasts in its works and compares itself to others. Good does not need forgiveness because it doesn't sin as much as others do. And good is not justified forgiven by God. Good, good people love themselves and what they do. They boast on it. Look, I do this, I do that, I do that. Look at the Lord have me do this. They used to call it, a couple years ago they were calling it a humble brag. When people would say, man, I can't believe the Lord allowed me to sell this many books and I'm number one on this, this list and that list and that list. Here's a link to my book and if It used to be like humble bragging because good loves itself. And it rebukes others' unrighteousness, but not their own. But godliness, godliness can loathe itself. By that I mean it rebukes its own unrighteousness. The tax collector, humble, he's contrite. There's a sense of guilt because he knows I'm dishonoring you, God. Jesus says he didn't even lift his head up but beat his chest. That means that that dude may not have even known that he was standing beside a Pharisee. He was so focused on his own failures against God that he didn't even care who was around. He didn't even know he was being compared to. Because when you're trying to be godly, godly doesn't, doesn't believe themselves to be righteous before God. They believe themselves to be unworthy, worthy of God's wrath. Godliness is more focused on their sin against God. 
Godliness doesn't compare itself to others because it knows that it fails to keep God's standard. The comparison is Jesus, not your boy who struggles with lust. Not your, not your friend who's over-anxious and is always complaining. That's not the standard. That's a low bar. You can't even limbo with that. It's so low. Godliness wants and needs mercy. And godliness is justified, forgiven before God. There is a reason why many Christians are rarely convicted of their own sin against God. Especially when someone points it out. Because the standard for godliness is not being like other people instead of being like Jesus. And that's what Christianity in America, at least, has been reduced to. Good mourns at being sinned against. Godly mourns at sinning against God. You know how many people over the years I've talked to that are so hurt by what someone's done to them, but excuse their sin because they were hurt by what someone did? So because they were sinned against, and they were were, it justifies their sinning back or their bitterness or whatever. And it's like, well, hey, how do you think this honors the Lord? Remember that question I asked, what fruit of the spirit is that? You know why I came up with that question? Because so many people were acting like I'm justified in my sin because I've been sinned against. And I was like, well, what fruit of the spirit is that? To try to bring it back around like, hey, I get it. You've been hurt. You've been sinned against. You've been betrayed. All those things are true. But the person you're imitated was hurt, sinned against, and betrayed for you. I don't say it like that. We, we preaching right now. I want people to be like, dang, I ain't beat with him, have you? <laughs> Fake gun. <laughs> Contemporary Christianity has been reduced to being a better good person than being like Jesus. Believers are no longer trying to be like him. You tell people now you got to be loving, they'll act like we can't do that today. That's the, we can't be winsome and loving in this culture. We got to fight back. Fight who, fam? There's no such thing as a culture war biblically. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We compare ourselves to others thinking we're honoring the Lord. But we may have completely abandoned the idea that we're called to imitate Jesus, not compare ourselves to others. I close with this verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 12. Listen to what Paul says. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. So he's saying, look, we're not here to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. You see what comparison does? It commends itself. Well, I don't do that, so. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. You can look up the passage in context to see if I'm taking you out of context. The point is this, the standard for obedience, for godliness, God's definition of good is to imitate him and prioritize him. The definition of good that we inherited, though, and that we largely live by is comparing ourselves to others. We think our achievements make us better than others. Fam, I don't care what your IQ is. <laughs> Stephen, no one here is smarter than Stephen Hawkins. I don't think that dude made it. He said he doesn't believe in God. Your IQ, your accomplishments, your, your body shape, 
your gifts, your personality doesn't mean anything. Your imitation does. Are you more like the Lord or are you just better than other people? Because if you are, best of luck to you. As for me and what I and Mike and others want to teach in this church is that we compare ourselves vertically. They don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we don't challenge each other and stuff just because we have sin issues and stuff like that. But I do want to say one thing about challenging others. Make sure, especially in close relationships like marriage and parenting or, or between your siblings or in-law, make sure you're challenged. If they're Christians, make sure you're challenging people because they're not honoring the Lord and you're not challenging them because they're offending you. You're not the standard. And you know how many times I failed? I've been so angry because you've offended me. Man, who am I? Make sure you, you care. To, and this is what I mean. Like, we're so caught up in being a better good person that even when we correct people, we're talking about you've offended me. I lost my temper because you offended me. But if I'm concerned that you're disobeying God, there's a gentleness, a care that comes with that. But I think you out of step. Well, you're offended my standard. I'm ready to, like, who are you? Who am I? I've had to grow the most in this over the years. When you're a pastor, you're in this role, you do things for people, you serve, you do all this stuff. People say stuff about you that's not true. Or they make it, or make, or this is what people do. They do stuff like leave the church and then say, like, well, I just don't want to say nothing because I want, as if there was something that we did. Huh? Then say it. Say what it is. Because you didn't tell us. We do it all the time. We have to be concerned about are we imitating Jesus? And we're not going to do it perfectly. That's what the cross is for, right? We're forgiven. We're not talking about we're forgiven. We're forgiven. But if we want our sins forgotten, we need to we need to change that tilt, change that tilt. I think there's a lot of people in this room that need to ask their spouse or their children for forgiveness. Because I think a lot of people in this room, their spouses are scared to bring things up to them. Because it's like, ah, what's the point? Because it's not an emphasis on imitating God. There's an emphasis on being a better good person. And when you bring me, when you say something to me, now again, there are ways you can say things that can tempt somebody to react. But even if that happens, if there's some truth to that, then it's not about how the person said it. I've said this before and I'll say this. I was in the movie theaters one time. And I was in one of them movies with a bunch of people. You know how people just be talking. <laughs> and sometimes it's funny, you know. Sometimes it'll say, somebody will say something that's funny, but sometimes it's like, hey, go ahead, man. We, we didn't pay $15 to get your commentary, bro. <laughs> so I'm like Paul in Acts 16. I'm starting to get annoyed after a while. So I'm about to say something, and someone else says, hey, excuse me. Can you quiet down? We're just trying to watch the movie. And the person got offended. Don't tell me to quiet down. And he made it seem like the person said, hey, shut up, fam. 
And this person missed the point. It doesn't matter how they said it. Are you too loud? If you tell me to shut up, or, hey, would you mind quieting down? I'm going to be tempted by one of those, maybe both of them. But the issue is, am I too loud? Are you too loud? That's the question. Not, did you say it a certain way for me to receive it? Get over yourself. I used to think like that all the time. Well, you need to, how you say it to me, and then it becomes, man, no matter, whisper's too loud. If you don't want to hear what somebody has to say. Hey, hey, who you talking to like that? You louder than the whisper. I've done it. I've done it. As your pastor and as your friend, I'm teaching this so that you don't do it. So that we take seriously. We take that supernatural storyline. We realize that this is what's happening. And we accept the reality of persecution. Remember, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. But what persecutes us will surprise us. And we'll see that next week. Let's pray. Father, there is no one like you. There is no one under heaven, on heaven, or above heaven that is like you. There is no one that should try to imitate beside you. But Lord, you know that we're fallen creatures, we're fallen beings. We sometimes will. We're just going to fail at this. You know I do. You know I do. But Lord, I pray for those who would really desire to honor you, that this would be a reminder, an adjustment to keep comparing themselves to the scriptures. Lord, I speak to those who are just easily offended at, at observation, that are deceived into thinking that they're above being corrected because even the person that's correcting them may not be as good at them as certain things. That's not the point. Lord, I pray that you would help them see them, not because I said it, but because you reveal it. Help them see them as you've been helping me see me. That there is no standard but you. And so if we're easily offended, especially when someone like our spouse or people that we know love us, close friends, co-workers that we then maybe it's because we're not as concerned about failing you as we are about them presumably failing us and Lord for those of us who've yet to believe in you this doesn't really matter but they don't realize that they can't even keep their own standard so Lord I pray that you would have mercy on anyone who doesn't believe you who thinks that they're a good person and is good with that. Good compared to what? And what's the standard of goodness? Father, help us to see us so that we can better see you. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.